Take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we're working our way through verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, And we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So we've come again uh, tonight to this wonderful portion of Scripture. Uh, we've been working our way through it for some time now, uh, looking at what I've, what I've titled the unquenchable love of God uh, for us. Uh, we've been looking at the assurance of our salvation for those who are in Christ. We're no, under, we're no longer under condemnation. The assurance of our salvation for those who are now indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit it's in the context of the eternal security of the, the believer, those who've been justified by God's grace through Christ, as God wants his children to know with an absolute certainty that nothing will ever separate us from his love. Uh, we've had the guilt of our sin removed by Christ. We've had the penalty of our sin paid for by Christ. Uh, therefore, we have peace with God. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been marked out as his own. Uh, led again by the person of the Holy Spirit, we're headed for glory. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So that is what is known as the eternal security of the believer. It's known as the perseverance of the saints, that those who've been removed from the realm of condemnation in Christ, those who are justified, God has promised us uh, glory. We're destined for glory. And the whole point of that great... uh, uh, anthem of verses and and that great look at our eternal destiny is is to point out for us in time that if God has done the greater thing for us, that is uh, secure our eternal salvation in Christ and our eternal destiny and glory, then if God has done the greater thing, then he can most certainly do the lesser thing. That is walk with us in life and all of the troubles that we have of life in a fallen world. And again, that's the great hope of, of verse 28, that God is directing our lives. Therefore, The text says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good in our life. That's the hope that we have. Now, as we saw last time, we went and spent some time with that little phrase, all things, and all things actually means what? All things. things. You are a sharp group, right? You must be taught well. So all things, right? God is providential care and love for us, uses all things uh, for our good, even the bad things that happen in our life. Uh, he overrules the bad consequences of those things for our good. Our God is so good, so powerful. He takes even the bad things, the evil things, even the evil of sin, and he turns it into something good in our lives because he has defeated sin and death through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has loved us with an eternal love that is inseparable, that, that will never fail, that will never come to an end. So again, this portion of scripture is meant to give to the believer a great amount of hope, a great amount of encouragement as God's children, again, uh, in a difficult world, in a fallen world. And when things are problematic, as they often are in this world, we remember, I've taught you this before, we are to speak to ourselves what the truth is. Right? We need to speak to ourselves the truth of what God says to be true, not listen to ourselves. We make a great error when we start listening to ourselves, when we start listening to our emotions and our feelings. The truth is we need to speak to ourselves the truth and then look up to God and to Christ, to trust them, to believe what God says is true regarding our eternal security and our eternal destiny because of Christ. 
And therefore, because of that truth, and to believe upon that truth, that the fact is that day in and day out, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Now, as we've been working our way through this verse uh, chapter, or this verse 28, he said there's four major headings here, uh, four truths uh, for us to look through. The certainty, which is the first one. The second is the extent of the, pro- the uh, promise, the recipients, and then the reasons. Why, beyond all doubt, we are eternally safe and secure in the hands of our God. Uh, the last couple times we were together, we looked at both the certainty and the extent of the promise. And I think, I hope, we've become convinced of the based on the character of the nature of our God and his faithful word, that we're absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt uh, that God does, again, work all things for good. He's so powerful that he displays his goodness and his love towards us in Christ that we can, with utmost certainty, say we know that God causes all things to work together for good in our lives, right? Again, the good things, the bad things, God uses all things for our good. And God, if he withholds nothing from us that is good, if he orders all of the things in our life according to his providence, if he even overrides the bad things in our life for our good, then is there any reason for us to doubt our standing before him in Christ? Is there any reason ever to think that we ourselves are something that we, uh, that, or that, that we ourselves or someone or something could ever cause us who are in Christ to ever come under condemnation. Again, they're rhetorical questions, which demand a, a negative answer. Because God will never cause anything into our lives and never allow anything to harm us in an eternal sense. So again, there's some people who have a very great difficulty in understanding the eternal security of their salvation because they think their security is based on something they do, something they did, something they have done, when our eternal security is based on the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, what he's accomplished for us. So again, in a fallen world, we may go through difficulties. In a fallen world, we might even suffer. We may be come under persecution. Uh, we may be tempted. We may be tried. Uh, we may be affected by sin, our sin and the sin of others around us. But our God is so wonderful that he brings good things out of evil. He brings order out of disorder. Uh, he brings what is helpful out of hurtful situations and ministers for the good of his children, those who know him as Father, those who know him as Abba. Right? That's the hope. That's the promise of the section. Now, what I want to do tonight is uh, move on, and I want us to look at something very practical by asking the question, how can I know that this promise of all things working out for good is a promise that truly belongs to me? So how do we know this promise, the statement (coughs) has been made, this is the reality by what God says to be true. Now, how do I know that this promise belongs to me? And it's a good question. It needs to be asked, and it can be answered by the verses ahead of us. So all we have to do is look at who are the recipients That's the third point. Who are the recipients of this most wonderful promise and hope that God wants to give to his children? And then we see if we match up to the description of who the recipients are. Who's entitled to receive this promise and blessing from God? So again, let's look at the recipients here. Verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good, and here they are, to those who love God, to those who are called. So the first thing that Paul tells us is that Uh, Those who are confident that they are eternally secure in Christ are those who love God and those who are called. Now, immediately, at least in my mind, it begs the question, why? Why does Paul describe that those who are confident in their eternally secure, uh, internal security in Christ, why does he use the phraseology or describes them as those who love God? Is there a specific reason 
why he uses that terminology versus just saying those who believe. And I think there is. So why the use of the love of God versus those who believe in God? Paul often uses that phraseology, the love of God, to describe Christians, the true believer. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, says, Just as it is written, the things which the eye has not seen, ear has not heard, which have not entered in the heart of man, all that God has prepared, here, here it is, all that God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is accursed. Jesus used the same phraseology or the same kind of description and in Mark 12 verse 30 he says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So there's probably no more accurate terminology that so properly accurately describes the uh, characteristic of a true believer than to say that the believer is one who loves God. The believer is one who loves the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I think in the context of the book, obviously we're picking it up and we're dissecting it pretty slowly, but I think in the context of the book, more than likely, Paul's continuing forward a contrast that he started a little bit earlier in chapter 8. And if you want to, you can just look right back up there, chapter 8, verse 5. He says this, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit... Verse 6, for the mindset on the flesh is death but the, death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells within you, but anyone does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So he's saying, Paul is saying, look, there's only two kinds of people in the world. That's it. I mean, we divide up into a bazillion different categories and a bazillion and five in the world in which we live, right? We're dividing everybody on every kind of issue every single day. But the Bible says there's only kind of, only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the spirit. Those who, who, whose minds are set on death and those whose minds are set on life and peace. Those who hate God and those who love God. Again, verse 7, the mindset on the flesh, the carnal mind, is hostile. It's at hostility. It's enmity towards God. And they do not subject themselves to the law of God, for they're not able to do so because they are in the flesh. And because they're in the flesh, they can't please God. Now, this is the way God has always divided up the world. He's always seen men in this kind of categories. Exodus 20, verse 5, you shall not worship or serve them. In the context, he's talking about idols. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the, um, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity on the fathers of the children of the thir- third and fourth generations, listen, of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant his loving kindness to the thousandth generation of those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them, and he will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. So again, he's saying there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who hate God and those who love God. The natural man, the saved man. The non-Christian and then the Christian. Those according to the flesh and those according to the spirit. So I think that's tremendously important for us to get a grasp on, especially in the day in which we live, and especially in the pluralistic 
religious day in which we live. It's not, it's not hard to find people that say they don't believe in God whatsoever, but then it's also not hard to find people that say, well, I believe in God. Some people might even go as far as saying, well, I even love God. But if you really press them and try to get them to define their God, many of them would give you a different name other than Jesus Christ. Allah, Buddha, the Almighty, the Divine, the Powerful One, whatever. Some might even go as far as say they even believe in God and they even love Jesus. But then you really press that group of people and you press their definition of God, it becomes patently obvious that they stand in stark opposition to God as he has revealed himself in the Bible. And some in this group who say that they love Jesus, they believe in a Jesus that stands again in stark opposition to the biblical truth. They believe in a Jesus who's the half-brother of Lucifer. They believe in a Jesus that's a created being. They believe in a Jesus that is subject to his mother Mary. Most of the people in this group, or most of the the group of quote-unquote religious individuals, stand outside of the pale of orthodoxy, of orthodox Christianity, but there are certain groups, and again, the definitions I've just given you of Jesus, they think they belong to it, and they try to work their way into whatever orthodox Christianity is, right? And a lot of people that claim to be orthodox accept some of these people into the into the faith. Now, there's another group of people out there who are religious, and they say they believe in God. They even believe in the God in the Bible. And they claim outright allegiance to orthodox truth, to Protestant Christianity. Yet you find their lives, when you look at them, when you examine their lives, they don't attend a place of worship on a regular basis. They're not a part of a fellowship. They don't read their Bibles on a regular basis. Again, this group says they quote-unquote believe in God because they remember a day back in 19 so-and-so or 20 so-and-so, whatever, where they made a quote-unquote commitment when they raised their hands, when they went forward, they walked an aisle, baptized, whatever. And again, this group of people are confident in their decision that they made. And again, this group of people have often been taught to never question the fact that they are eternally secure solely based on a one-time transaction that they made somewhere in the past of their life that they made. And again, although they claim to believe in God, their professed belief has little or no effect on their daily lives. You know lots of people like this. They say they believe in God, but they have no ongoing relationship with God. They don't see any need, again, to be in the fellowship. They don't, they don't need to see any need to be around other believers. They don't see any need to worship or love or serve God or, or to obey God. And again, this group sees their relationship to the Christian faith solely in terms of their minds. They see Christianity as a matter of intellectual acceptance of, of truth, disregarding any practical, tangible, transformational changes in their lives. Again, they say they believe in God, but it, that's it. it, it their, their belief makes no, uh, has no effect on their daily lives. And both of the groups with all the people in these this different categories that I've just mentioned, uh, again, may genuinely claim a belief in God, uh, one group, again, comes from many ways and many paths outside of Orthodox uh, uh, Christianity, and some, again, within or trying to work their way into Orthodox Christianity. Another group comes within the camp of Orthodox Christianity. Uh, both groups uh, fervently claim, again, they, they believe in God. And then, of course, there's another group uh, in the world. They claim to be atheists. Right? You've met them also. They claim to have no belief whatsoever in God. And they both uh, proudly boast that they'll never bow the knee to any kind of such a, a nonsense. 
And some of these people, you know them again, some of these people are nice people, some of them are kind, some of them are gracious, some of them are downright nasty, filled with all manner of vileness, perversion, they're openly hostile towards God. Now I've given you three basic uh, kinds of uh, um, religious individuals, the non-Christian, again the non-Protestant groups, uh, Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, Roman Catholicism. The nominal believer in the second category, again, that comes within the camp of Protestantism, uh, again, marked by many different colors, different, different kinds of backgrounds uh, theologically, but they all come from the easy believism category. And then the atheist, you say, well, how's that a religious group? Well, of course they're religious. They worship themselves. <laughs> there's no God. I know that. Since I'm God, I know all things. So there's no God. I'm a God. I'm going to worship myself. So they're all religious groups. But again, what does the Bible say? The Bible says there's only two groups of men. The Bible says there's only two groups of men in the world. You either love God or you don't. Right? You either love God or you hate God. Again, no matter what you say with your lips. Therefore, i got to point out, and I go through this whole thing, to point out the fact that there's a tremendous difference between being religious and being a Christian. That's the point. There's a tremendous difference between being religious and being a Christian. There's a tremendous a difference between being religious and being saved. Just like there's a tremendous difference between all these groups that I just listed and what each group believes and how what they believe affects their lives. And all that goes back to the reason why I think Paul used the phrase, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Here it is, to those who love God. Because he's trying to draw out the point that biblical Christianity goes far, far beyond simply believing in God. Biblical Christianity goes far beyond just the mind. Biblical Christianity goes far beyond just an intellectual assent to truth or an intellectual acceptance of truth. Because true biblical Christianity results in real, practical, tangible, transformational changes in a person's life. That's why I reference 2 Corinthians 5.17 always, or often I did it this morning. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new one. Yeah, he's not just something painted up that's dead. A little more makeup on him, right? No, he's a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have what? Passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Because a person can believe in God and not be a Christian. You say, well, where does that come from? James chapter 2, verse 19, thanks for asking. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe and they shudder. The demons believe in God. Satan believes in God. The demons and Satan have good theology. They believe in one God. They believe that he's all-powerful. So again, they actually do believe in God with all their faculties. Their belief in God elicits from them a physical response as their genuine belief causes them to shake physically. They physically shake in terror. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shake, they shudder. So while they believe in God, most certainly they're not saved. And most certainly the demons are devil themselves, not a Christian. Therefore, it's not enough just to ask a person if they believe in God. It's insufficient for a man to make a profession of belief in God alone, to merely give a verbal assent or intellectual assent to a body of doctrinal truth. That doesn't mean you're a Christian. Nor does that mean that you're one that Romans 8.28 is 
hoping to address to give this assurance of salvation, that there's something further that's required of men than simply an intellectual assent to truth. Because biblical Christianity, true saving faith, involves much more than just a simple assent to truth, just more than a simple believing. True, genuine saving faith consists of turning from sin to God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call that what? Repentance. Repentance. It's a turning away from sin and turning to God. It involves a surrender of our life, our sinful life to God by faith in receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which results in a complete transformational change, a change of life. And one of the transformational changes that happens, one of the first marks of someone who's generally come to saving faith in Christ, genuine saving faith, is they now become those who love God. Those who love God. Because that's what true salvation produces. It produces lovers of God. Uh, Romans 5 and 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The love of God has been lavishly, overflowingly poured out in our hearts. So one of the transformational changes that comes to someone who's a genuine a believer, it produces within them a love for the person of God, love for the person of Christ. One of the first fruits of the Spirit, right? The first fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, self-control, right? So someone who's truly saved, someone who's genuinely a new creation in Christ, they can't help but feel anything except an overwhelming sense of love, an overwhelming sense of gratitude towards God because of the forgiveness of their sin in Christ. Remember the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, who undoubtedly uh, was a prostitute. She came and she kissed the feet of Jesus. She anointed him and washed his feet with her hair because she was forgiven much. And because she was forgiven much, she loved much. So again, what is it, exactly does it mean to love God? Again, is it just an emotional response? Is it just an emotional feeling of gratitude? Is that what it means to truly love God? And many people believe that. Uh, many people believe that an emotional feeling, a sentiment, an emotional sentiment is what defines love. But many people believe wrongly. And again, the Lord Jesus Christ defined the parameters of, of true love when he summed up the commandments. And he said, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Christ said that the love of God is all-inclusive. Christ said that every part of our being is involved, not just our emotions. The love of God, therefore, demands a total response of our life to him. A total response to him of our entire lives. Uh, the love of God requires an unreserved, wholehearted commitment to him. So therefore, the love of God, and someone who genuinely possesses it, has a life that is marked out by certain distinguishing characteristics. Uh, again, it's not based on some kind of formal legalism, but it's coming from a hard understanding and knowing that the true God who he is and what he has done for his people, therefore our response to him is a response of love, a love of God, a love to God based on our knowing the truth, based on our understanding the truth, no, having that truth impressed upon our lives, impressed upon our hearts, our minds. And our love for God is evidenced again by certain practical, tangible uh, ways, certain practical, tangible evidence in our life, such as obedience, obedience to him. Luke 6, verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Man, I've met a lot of guys who say that they were believers, but they don't have to obey. 
I don't write the stuff. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I'm saying? John chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus Christ, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. John 15, verse 14, Jesus Christ speaking, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So again, love of God, the love of God is is seen in practical, tangible ways, not just theoretical ways, not just verbal ways. Again, you can talk all day long about how much you love God, but if your lives aren't marked by obedience to him, obedience to his revealed commands, if there's no genuine desire in a person's heart, desire in a person's life to please him, to, to live for his glory, then the profession of faith doesn't, if the profession of faith doesn't match up to practice, then we don't really love God. Again, no matter what we say. Now, make sure you understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying perfectly. We're all humans. I got that. And we don't love God and obey him as fully as we ought to because we have this thing still we're incarcerated in called the flesh. But if we're truly saved, then there's a desire to obey him. The dominating passion of our life is to live for the glory of God. To live for the honor of Christ. I just want to please him. That's the motivation of your life every day when you get up. I I don't know what's going to happen today, Lord. I don't know what's coming, but I just want to honor you in everything I do. That's That's the heart of a believer. And our ability to obey, our ability to love him is going to grow. Philippians 1.6. Paul says this, I pray that your love may abound still more and more. And then he says, in a real knowledge and in all discernment. Right, so as you come to real knowledge and all discernment, I pray that your love may abound still more and more and more and more. Right? Because that's the way it is for a believer. A life that is persistently disobedient towards God is an unbelieving, unloving heart, again, no matter what the profession might be from the lips. Now, I want you to take your Bible, and I want to show you this. Uh, in Second uh, Corinthians 5, we're going to come back, obviously, to Romans, but just go over to Second Corinthians. <clears throat> Chapter 5, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. So the primary reason why a true believer can't live for himself, the primary reason that a true believer will and must obey God and serve him is Christ. It's Christ's substitutionary death upon Calvary's cross. That's the motivation for the believer. That's the motivation for the believer to obey God, to serve him. For the love of Christ controls us. One commentator offers this. He says, while Paul's love... For his Lord certainly compelled him. The phrase love of Christ is best seen in this context as Christ's love for Paul. A love most clearly seen in his and Christ's sacrificial death. It was that magnanimous, free, unmerited love that controlled, drove, and motivated Paul. Since Christ loved him savingly, he wanted to be certain that nothing hindered him in his ability to serve him. The focus on Christ's incomprehensible, unbreakable, unconditional love overwhelmed Paul more than 
overwhelmed Paul. More than that, it controlled him. Right? So the, the, the sacrificial death, the love of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ poured out, controlled his thoughts. It drove him. And what's interesting of that word, the, the love of Christ, that word control really describes a pressure that produces an action. It's a pressure that produces an action. And it's the magnitude of Christ's love for believers like Paul that compelled him to serve him, to serve God wholeheartedly, again, as an act of grateful worship. So a true believer cannot live for himself. A true believer will obey God. A true believer will serve God, serve Christ because of Christ, because of Christ's substitutionary death upon Calvary's cross in his place. That reality in a believer's life compels the believer to do so. Christ came into the world, we know, because the Father sent him. The Father sent him because he loved this world full of sinful men and women just like you and me. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. First John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. We would not and we could not love God unless God first acted. Unless God first loved us, and he's done so with a costly, eternal love in his son, the person Jesus Christ. First John 4, 9. By this, the love of God is manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God first loved us in Christ, and Christ loved the Father by obeying the will of the Father and coming and taking on human flesh and dying upon the cross in our place. Therefore, we can't refrain from devoting ourselves entirely to Christ when we stop and consider the great love that he has exercised through us, to us, when we endured, when we stop and consider the fact that he endured our death Right? He and our, took our place and he endured our death. Again, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. That reality of the substitutionary sacrificial death of Christ, the transformation of our life in Christ because of the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, that controls us. That puts a pressure from God that produces an action in the believer's life. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And because that one person, Christ, died for all, isn't it reasonable that we should live for him or live to him? Again, he died in our place. He took away God's wrath, his holy, righteous anger towards our sin. Christ bore it in his body on Calvary's cross. Again, God, through Christ, takes away his wrath. He satisfies his justice as God's perfect only, Jesus Christ, God's only perfect sacrifice for the sins of men. Therefore, is it not reasonable that we would live for him? And the answer is yes. Have to. Because we've been changed. The true believer obeys, serves, worships. The true believer, for the true believer, it is reasonable. Now, we're not conformed to this world. Now, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, and then we're going to do what with our bodies. We're going to present our bodies to God as a holy, living sacrifice, right? That's the reasonable thing to do for the believer. Because of the reality of Christ's sacrificial substitutionary death for us, our internal transformation because of the person of uh, the Holy Spirit who now dwells within us, that now we're new creations in Christ. And the old us no longer lives, right? Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore what? All died, right? That's where you're at if you're a believer, If you're in Christ, you're dead. 
The old you is dead. We went through that in Romans chapter 6, right? If you're in Christ, the old you is dead. Paul said it like this to the Galatians, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. What does it mean to be crucified? I'll give you the answer. It's dead. Right? You're dead. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So one who is genuinely saved, one who is genuinely uh, uh, repentant and, and has a saving faith upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ must and will, out of love for God, out of love for Christ, be obedient to the Father. God's going to guarantee that. So again, what does it mean to love God? Again, it's it's what's seen, right? That's the definition. The definition of what's seen it means first and foremost that we practically live our lives out in practical devotion, right, in obedience to God and Christ. I already referenced it, but Matthew 22, again, Christ says, You shall love the Lord your God with all, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Now, when Jesus made that statement in Matthew 22, he's quoting from the Shema, the Hebrew for, and the Hebrew, that word means hear, the Jewish confession of faith that every devout Jewish individual repeated twice a day, recited twice a day. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear Israel, the Lord is uh, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the Shema goes on quoting passages of Scripture that promise blessing only for those who love God and serve Him with their whole hearts, obeying God's command and walking in holiness. Right, So the love of God is actually seen, it's worked out, it's manifested in our life, in our desire in our actions, obeying God. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, verse 15, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, our love for God doesn't originate with us. It originates with God. Right? With the eternal love of God. Again, God sends Christ into the world to, to die in our place. And we obey the commands in obedience to God. We demonstrate, therefore, our love for him. But again, that love for God, that ability to love God, and the ability, again, to obey God is really a God-originated thing. He's the one. We love because he first loved us. Right? First John four nineteen. So again, those who are truly saved, those who are genuinely uh, transformed, uh, those who have, uh, again, repented, they love God because that's a manifestation in their life because of God's manifestation in that person's life. Does that make sense? Again, first, uh, first John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Uh, again, our text, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He who died for all, and he died for all so that they might live, no, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. What, what does genuine faith look like? Well, it looks like something. We're not who we used to be. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Uh, Luke 6, 46. Uh, he who has my commandment, it keeps them. This is the one who loves me. John 14, 21 again. John 15, 14. You're my friends if you do what I command you. Right? So there's a love of God that's really God produced because God loves us first and we in response to the sacrificial death, the internal transformation, and the indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit. We love God back in return because that's what God has placed within our heart, the love of Christ. Now, there's some other distinguishing marks that you could ask or look at your life to see if you're really one who falls into that definition of those who truly love God. 
Another distinguishing mark is that a person who truly loves God, truly loves God, longs to be with Him. He longs to be with Him. He longs to be in personal communion with Him. Psalm forty-two, one: As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before Him? Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you're my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there's no water, thus I've seen seen you in the sanctuary and see your power and glory. Because of your loving kindness, it's better than life, and my lips will praise you. The person who truly loves God not only marks a life of obedience, but he has a desire to be with God. He wants to be in communion with God. He longs for God. He thirsts for the living God. Secondly, a person who loves God truly desires his word. He desires his word. Psalm 119, verse 72. The law of your mouth, or the law of your mouth is better to me than a thousand gold or silver pieces. Verse 97. How I love your law. It's my meditation all day. Uh, 103 out of that uh, Psalm 119. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 138, verse 2. I will bow down to your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth for you have magnified your word according to all your name i love it in the end and the uh, king james because it says for you have magnified your word above your name the word of god people who truly love god who have truly been transformed by the person of god through christ have a desire for god's word they have a desire to be with god a person who really truly loves god loves the things that god loves and hates the things that God hates. Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, lying tongues, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife amongst brothers. Since God can't tolerate evil, those who really love him can't tolerate evil. They won't tolerate evil. Christians are in the world, but they're not of the world. We don't give ourselves over to the world. We don't do the things that the world does. We don't uh, approve of the evil that the world approves of. First John 2 and 15, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So God hates sin. Therefore, we who are truly transformed and changed, we should hate sin first in our own lives and then in the lives of fellow believers and then most certainly in the lives of non-believers in this fallen world. We should hate sin. Number four, a person who's truly, who truly loves God is sensitive to God's will and his honor. A person who truly loves God is sensitive to God's will and God's honor. When God's honor or God's name is blasphemed by the unbelieving world, faithful, loving children of God suffer pain on his behalf. David said, Psalm 69, verse 9, For the zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Right? A person who truly loves God is sensitive to God's will and sensitive to his honor, hates seeing God blasphemed, which God is blasphemed all the time in this perverse, wicked culture. All the time. Number five, a person who genuinely loves God loves God's people. A person who genuinely loves God loves God's people. 1 John 3 and 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because of the love of the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. 1 John 4 and 7. Beloved, let us 
love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4 and 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ uh, is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the, ch- the child born of him. By this we know that we, lo- we love the child- children of God, that we love God and observe his commandments. Again, a genuine believer loves God and loves God's people, desires to be with them. So again, what exactly does it mean to love God? A person who truly loves God longs to be with him. He longs for a personal communion. A person who truly loves God desires his word. He loves the thing that God loves, hates the thing that God hates. Therefore, he loves righteousness and he hates sin. A person who truly loves God is sensitive to the will of God and to God's honor. A person who genuinely loves God again loves God's people and wants to be with him. But first and foremost, the thing that defines somebody who genuinely loves God, first and foremost, is that their lives are practically lived out in devotion and obedience to God and to Christ. Because the love of God through Christ controls them, produces that pressure. Again, that's a gift that God has given to men through the person of Jesus Christ, that we might be forgiven of our sin, that we might move out of the category from death to life that we might come into his family, change, transform, out of the realm of darkness into the realm of light and life. And again, to be one of those who love God means that because God has provided his love to us through Christ, we're confident in the fact that God has overruled and uses all things in our life for good. That's how we get into the first category. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. Why do we love him? Because he first loved us. Why do we love him? Because of the person of Jesus Christ. Why do we love him? Because the person of Jesus Christ died as a substitute in our place, transformed and changed our life by the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. And there's an inward pressure that continues to push us in obedience because true children of God are obedient to their Father. The second description. Those people who have confidence in their eternal security before God. He says, those who are called. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called. So why does Paul use that terminology? Well, what does that mean to be one of those who are called? And I think the reason that Paul uses that terminology here is the explanation for why we love God. It's a cause and effect. The cause is we who are called, and the effect is we now love God. Because we're called, we love God. Now, we know this reality. They're born into the world. Every man separated from God by their sin. I'll very quickly just turn over to, uh, um, I'm doing this a little bit early, but just go ahead and turn over there to uh, um, uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Familiar portion of Scripture. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. But let me just have you see it right up front. And again, it's a little bit earlier than I originally thought, but it's all right. Ephesians chapter 2. Born into the world, every man separated from God. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then he says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We are all rebels coming into this world. Coming into this world, all we could do is hate God. We have absolutely had no, absolutely no ability to love him. Again, Romans 5.10 says we are enemies of God. And again, Paul says in Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And those who are called according to God's purpose have been moved from the category of wrath and enemies and haters of God into the category of now those who are what? Lovers of God. From haters of God to lovers of God because God has called us. So what does the word called mean? Uh, in, in, the, in the Greek, it's kletos, literally called or invited. Invited like invited to a banquet. And again, it's, in, it's invited by the proclamation of the gospel, and it's an invitation to obtain eternal salvation in the kingdom of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the, the idea of the word invited or called doesn't mean invited in the sense of, well, you can come if you'd like. It's not what it means. It's not an appeal to man's will. A better way to look at the word called is in the sense that the called is a description of those who are the object of God's will and an object of God's purpose. Again, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. So now you're under the will of God and you're under the purpose of God if you're one who's been called. And again, just as our love for God originates with God, so does our calling into his heavenly family. Because again, naturally, we're all where? Dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. Well, let me ask you a question. How many dead things have you ever seen that can respond to anything? Not many. Right? My daughter had a goldfish not too long ago. It went AWOL. Out of the tank, onto the counter. I commanded that fish for two days to jump back into the bowl. That's what the sound of the fish was like. Laying there on the right? Dead things can't respond to anything. Right? And that's who we used to be. Again, look what it says, Ephesians 2 1. You were what? Dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Those who are called can't respond to anything. Those who are called are special objects of God's mercy and grace, and they've been called out of death to life. His initiative, his provision, because salvation is always of the Lord. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the earth, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, but God. Right? But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive, right? He made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith that's not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? The called are not just religious. 
the called are not from some kind of non-Orthodox, non-Protestant religious groups. The called are not just those who uh, profess belief in Christ. And then they go on and live their lives any way they want to, to their own glory, for their own purposes, giving absolutely no attention to the things of God or God's people. The called are those who love God. The called are those who because have loved God because God is what? Rich in mercy. And because God is rich in mercy, he's marked out individuals to receive that electing grace for salvation. That's why they're identified as the called. Vernon McGee has a great little illustration here. He says this, a boy, you guys familiar? Anybody even know Vernon McGee? I mean, some of the older people do, I know. Whole generation of people have missed out on Vernon McGee. Sad. He says, a boy down in my Southland years ago wanted to join a church, so the deacons were examining him, and they asked, how did you get saved? His answer was, God did his part, and I did my part. They thought there was something wrong with his doctrine, so they questioned further, what was God's part and what was your part? Vernon McGee says his explanation was a good one. He said, God's part was saving and my part was the sinning. I done run from him as fast as my sinful heart and rebellious legs could take me, and he done took out after me till he ran me down. That's classic Vernon McGee, right? And Vernon McGee adds this, my friend, that's the way I got saved. And that's the way I got saved. And that's the way you got saved if you're saved. That's the only way that a man gets saved. Called. As special objects of God's mercy and grace, out of death unto life, by his invitation, by his initiative, by his power, by his provision, because salvation is of the Lord. So again, the word called is what the theologians call the effectual call. Again, it's a call that's answered. Uh, the word called could equate essentially with chosen or elect, electos. People who are called according to God's purpose, therefore they are those who have been effectually called. They've been invited to the banquet they're coming. They've been invited to life, and God by his sovereign grace, by his regenerating power, through the person of the Holy Spirit, has brought them from the category of those who hate God to the category of those who love God. They brought, God has brought them from a category of those who are dead to now who have what? New life in Christ. Those who now have hearts and minds that are hearts and minds that are so thoroughly influenced by the Holy Spirit, they become aware of their sinfulness and they begin to understand that their need, they have a desperate need for Christ. And by faith alone, they embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. Now go back to Romans eight. Because again, this is the context of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, but it's really in a greater context of justification by faith. How do you know that you're really saved? How do you know that you're part of those who love God and called according to his purpose? How do you know that your, your salvation is secure? He goes on and says, look, let me tell you something else. Those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, let me tell you where you're going. You're destined for glory. And we know that God causes all things, verse 28... To work together for good to those who love God are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to this image of his son, so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. 
So true believers are never called on the basis of themselves. They're never called on the basis of their works. They're never called on the basis of their own purpose. Uh, their own purposes in life, right? Believers are called on the basis of who God is and what God has done. Second Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace by which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed and by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality and light through the gospel. Isn't that good? All true believers called by God through the gospel. Therefore, everybody who's truly called is going to respond by faith. And therefore, it is impossible, as some wrongly teach, to be called or saved and never know it. There's actually people who say there are people who, who are, are saved, but they just don't know it. Well, that's not true. No one is ever saved uh, apart from a conscience, conscious, willful acceptance uh, and confession of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that because I read Romans 10, 9. It says, if you what? Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you'll be saved with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation a person who is called of God is going to respond with saving faith and they will know that they are called because their life has been completely transformed so here's the question have I been called have I been called are there any practical signs if you will that identify whether or not you've been called and there are I'm going to give you a test you can evaluate through the series of questions to evaluate whether or not you've been called. And they're pretty simplistic, but they're pretty profound because they're so simplistic. If you look at yourself and you look at your life, are you amazed at yourself? Are you amazed that you're a true Christian? Right? Are you amazed that you're a Christian? Do you ever find yourself asking, why me? Why would God choose me? Do you ever find yourself asking, why do I care about these issues of doctrine? Why do I care about these issues of truth or Christianity? Because there was a time in my life when none of this made any sense to me, and I didn't care a thing about God, about truth, about the Bible, about the matters of eternity. But at some point, something changed. And now those things that once did not consume me or that I cared about whatsoever, these things I didn't care about whatsoever, now they consume me. Absolutely consuming. So can you say that? Can you say that I am amazed at the fact that I'm a Christian? Can you say that I am what I am by the grace of God? Can you say that I was once happy apart from him, but he pursued me, he overtook me, and now he consumes my mind, now he consumes my heart, my life? Because those are appropriate questions to ask as a test, a test to see if you really genuinely call Because a true Christian really can't understand himself. A true Christian will say, I am what I am by the grace of God. A a true Christian, again, is one who's always amazed with himself. He's very conscious of the fact that God has been dealing with him. A a true Christian would say something along the lines of, God called me, God interrupted my life. God interrupted my life. God disturbed me. He disturbed my plans, my goals. He, He entered into my life and he completely changed me, changed my direction. Change my motivation, change my heart desires. Can you say that genuinely? Because a true Christian can. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, To be called means that you know that God has, has been concerned about you, that he has done everything to you, he has interfered in your life, he has erupted into your life and laid hold of you. 
This is entirely different, he says, from our deciding to do something or our taking up religion because we find it interesting. He says, the people to whom all things work together for good are those who feel that the hand of God has come upon them and has taken a hold of them, and they have been apprehended. That's a great statement. So has God's hand come and taken a hold of you? Have you been apprehended by the person of God? Because that's what it means to be called. God's interrupted your life. You're doing your own thing, but then God came and turned your life upside down. You suddenly became convicted by sin. The the things that you once did and you enjoyed doing repeatedly, now they bring you shame. They bring you conviction. And again, that's not something you did. It's something that God has done to you, something that God has done in you. And and again, you didn't even necessarily desire desire it, but God kept coming. God kept pursuing. You tried not to listen. You tried to stop your ears, but God wouldn't let you. You struggled against it. You struggled against him. You fought with him. But then at some point, you started to believe in God's word. It started to make sense. You listened and you listened and it made more sense. And the book that you once rejected, the book that you once thought was ridiculous and foolish, the religion that you thought at one time was only for the weak, you've now come to hold and embrace and love and hold dear You began to look at your own life and you saw your sin and you saw your utter helplessness and hopelessness before a holy God and the fact that you were undone and you were on your way to eternal hell. And God interfered in your life and placed Christ before you and you saw him. You saw him in all his loveliness, all his holiness, and you heard his cry of repentance from sin and faith in him and you turned to him. And you embraced him as Lord and Savior. And you began to see the beauty of the fullness of his beauty. And you began to see the absolute sufficiency of his person, his work. And then you began to love him, the Lord of glory who died for me. And now with the hymn writer, you can with full voice say, when I think of God is not, that God his son not sparing sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, what? How great thou art right how great thou art then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art that those are the tests that you take into apply to yourself to see if you're the called because a man who's genuinely called loves god he loves christ his greatest desire is to know god and christ in a greater fashion to love them obey them to serve them worship them because they are worthy A man who has been called of God, who is truly saved, loves God, desires to please him. He hates his own sin. He loathes the sin of his flesh. Uh, He desires to be free from it. He longs to be with his Lord. Uh, The man who is truly saved, loves God, hates sins, uh, hates sin, and and he realizes that he's come from death to life. And now he's a partaker uh, of the divine life. He understands that God through the Holy Spirit dwells within him. He's changed, and now he's therefore truly thankful. Thankful for God making him an object of his grace and his mercy. And now he ever desires to have others come to know God like he knows God. So those are the kind of questions, those are the tests. Practical tests, tangible tests that we apply to ourselves to see if we're called. To see if we can know for certain that the promises made in Romans 8.28 apply to us. Who are the recipients of the promises, the most wonderful blessings in Romans 8.28? Those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. So do you love him? 
Do you long to be with him? Do you desire his word? Do you love righteousness? Do you hate sin? Are you obeying him? Are you absolutely amazed that you're a Christian and God has set his eternal electing love upon you? If so, then you may know with a knowledge of absolute certainty that the promises of Romans 8.28 for you, because now we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this wonderful look at who are the recipients of your great electing love through Christ. I pray, Lord, you take this truth and have us examine it in our own lives on a personal level to make sure that we are the called, not just believers, but actually called, and you have done a transforming work in our heart and in our lives. Lord, thank you for the blessing of our fellowship, for the privilege of gathering together uh, unhindered uh, in this building, both morning and evening. And now, Lord, we thank you for not only feeding our souls through your word, but now we have an opportunity to take a meal together and to have a great fellowship. And we thank you for that wonderful privilege, and we don't take that lightly. May you encourage the hearts of your people and bless us this upcoming week as we serve you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.